This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Welcome to Reimagine Law. Well, I'm delighted today to be joined by Gordon Tsang and Amelia Ma from international law firm CMS. Gordon and Amelia, it's great to have you with us today. And today we're going to be looking at this whole area of litigation and arbitration in terms of career path and actually what this whole area means. But just briefly, would you like to introduce yourselves first of all? Thanks, Nigel, and thanks for having me on here. Really delighted to be here today and talk about litigation and arbitration. So my name is Gordon San. I'm a, from the dispute resolution team at CMS, um, mainly focusing on commercial property disputes. Hi, everyone. My name's Amelia Ma. Just echoing what Gordon said, I'm really happy to be on this podcast today, so thank you for inviting. Um, I'm currently a fourth-seat trainee solicitor here at CMS, and I've done three other litigation seats. So my first one was in commercial litigation, then I moved over to insurance and reinsurance litigation, and now I'm also sitting in the commercial property litigation team with Gordon. Fantastic. Wow. So lots of perspectives already, uh, Amelia, in your in your pathway uh, that, that you've that you've gone through. Um, so thinking about our, our listeners where, you know, we're trying to help people think at what are possible pathways for me? What do the pathways mean? I might have heard the word litigation or I might have heard the word arbitration. Should we start off just in terms of perhaps of definitions? So, you know, in this whole area of litigation, arbitration, Amelia, you've given some of your areas of work that you've looked already. What does what does this whole what do these whole areas cover? What's the almost the breadth of it, might we say? And well, I'll just start off by just covering the litigation element of it. And to be honest, it can just cover absolutely anything that could be disputed, which really just covers anything and everything, really. Um, but I suppose the litigation angle is more the idea that it's not only a dispute, but it's a dispute that has the potential to go to court and or is currently going through the court proceedings. So that could be um, formal court proceedings. Or it could be also tribunals such as land tribunal, employment tribunal. There, they all fall within the category of litigation. I'll let Amelia discuss arbitration. Sure. So arbitration is another method of dispute resolution, and it's commonly referred to as one of the alternative dispute resolutions, or ADR for short. And it doesn't initially involve going to court, though may end up there later on. But the process of arbitration is where both parties will present their arguments to a person or a panel of people um, who are the arbitrator or the panel. And the arbitrator or panel is an independent um, person or set of people who then decide the case. So they have a very similar role to a judge, but there are key differences between litigation and arbitration. As Gordon has mentioned, litigation is based in the courts and arbitration is based out with the courts at the start. Arbitration is also typically more flexible because parties can choose who they want to be the arbitrator or who's on the panel, and they can also choose the procedure that can be followed. They can set various timelines. So, for example, after the hearing is finished, a decision must be given within X date. And sometimes arbitration can be preferred over litigation because of this sort of flexibility. And in the appointment of the arbitrator or the panel, they're usually an expert in their fields. And this can particularly help in more complicated and complex disputes where that sort of expert knowledge can be quite useful. Yeah, well, that's, that's really interesting. You say that the point being within the courts or, or out with the courts, as, as you say, Amelia. I mean, just, just one thought that immediately strikes strikes me there in terms of as you say, helping the clients in this area. 
is it something where they start down a certain pathway you know do they decide right at the beginning are we going to go towards an arbitration approach here or a, or a more litigation approach that might end up in the courts how, how does how does that sort of play out in terms of um, how a client approaches things and um, it really depends on what the client's looking for um, because as I mean, as alluded to, there are some key differences between litigation and arbitration and the other forms of dispute resolution. And um, I suppose the main part of the court process is that it's public. Um, so if you're going through court proceedings, if it reaches a final judgment, that will be publicly available. And also through the court proceedings, anyone can attend the court hearings. Whereas arbitration is a private process. So I guess it depends what the party's looking for. And I suppose if one thing they have to keep is confidentiality, then that will be a key factor for them. Another aspect is timing. Generally, arbitration is a quicker process than the court process. Um, so if the client's looking to get something done sooner, then they might prefer an alternative dispute resolution process. I think it also depends on cost because sometimes, I'd say sometimes, arbitration may be a little bit cheaper because you can do an arbitration that's just on the papers. So that doesn't involve actually, you know, having any witnesses or hearing any sort of oral evidence. And and arbitrator or the panel just looks at the papers. Um, on the flip side, sometimes it's not cheaper purely because you may have multiple parties. It may be incredibly complex. There may also be an international element to arbitration and um, because it's more recognized, whereas in the litigation, we're practicing Scots law, we're applying Scots law in the Scottish courts and arbitration has much more international elements. So if you have international parties and a more international dispute, arbitration can get more expensive. And so you know, cost also is a, is a big factor. That's really interesting. And you've touched on a few areas there. I mean, you, you mentioned about the confidentiality. So I guess there's an aspect there of almost reputation management, potentially, that is a helpful, a helpful in part of, you know, one of the, the, this, a decision, a choice about which, which path you go down, Gordon, as well. Yes, yeah, it's really important for us just to be clear at the outset what the client's objectives are, so that we're able to advise not only on the prospects of the case, but also the best avenue to resolve their dispute. Mm. Yeah. And, and and I guess that, and Amelia, you touched on the international aspect. You know, I know that there are certain centres, as you say, of almost dispute resolution, whether it's in Singapore or across in Europe or in you know, London as well, aren't there? So, as you say, I guess helping clients almost work out a structure in a possibly a very complicated international um, transaction or situation is is probably one of the key things, especially as an international firm, I suppose, you can offer. No, absolutely. You're, you're, you're right on there. And the, the sort of international element to arbitration is quite, you know, it has an advantage in the sense that sometimes it's a little bit easier to enforce whatever comes out of the arbitration. Whereas sometimes if you get a Scottish DP, a Scottish judgment, it, it can be a little bit harder to enforce elsewhere. Yeah. Which, of course, yeah, exactly, which becomes down to that interesting thing of almost there's the dispute, but then there's enforcing the, any decision that's made as well, isn't there, which comes there, which is a really interesting point, too. Wow. OK, so very broad, very complex area. And you say many practical issues to think about, such as reputation management and all of those areas. You've touched on the complexity as well. Um, if we were just to think about almost uh, we're trying always trying to give people ideas of what's a typical day in the life, the skills. Um, it, is this I mean, I think you've hinted at this already, Amelia and Gordon. Is it some? it feels something is it quite team based? So is it something where you're often liaising with lots of colleagues as, uh, to think about these issues? I think you'll probably hear this from quite a lot of people in, in our, our team generally, but there probably isn't a typical day. <laughs> I, I, I do definitely find that um, my days are very varied and there are no two days that are the same. So 
And there are some days where I will work quite closely with everybody in the team. And there are some times where I will just work very closely with one person for a longer period of time. And in terms of what I do in a day, sometimes I will be in court all day or in a consultation all day with a client. I might have a day where I'm sitting in the office and just have one really large task. So that might be drafting or research. But on the other hand, I might have a day where I do 10 little things um, over the course of the day. So it does vary quite a lot. And also the, the types of disputes that we do are quite different. Sometimes they're to do with rent arrears. Sometimes they're to do with breaches of leases, for example. So definitely very varied. I'm sure Gordon would sort of echo those thoughts. Yeah, I'd echo that. And just to a point there, Nigel, about whether our days are sort of very team-based. Um, like Amelia says, sometimes you're doing things by yourself. Um, but often you're working across the team on potentially large cases. And I think for me, that's the bit that appeals to me most when you work on a large, complex case as a part of a bigger team. Not only have you got the internal legal team that you're working with, um, you might have colleagues across the office who, have, who can offer different expertise, for example, intellectual property, corporate uh, or even employment. Um, you're then also working with external legal counsel. So barristers, advocates, sometimes you'll have junior and senior on the team and you'll also be working with experts as well so for the cases that we often deal with in the commercial property team uh, we'll have valuation experts planning experts and um, even landscape design experts so working together as a team to deliver the client's objectives and yeah in terms of working with the clients as well we're often working with the client's legal team so yeah for the large <laughs> complex cases it's wow. a big team effort to take it all the way through court that's a really big fun part of the process of working together and seeing that through. That's amazing. I mean, and, and, and it just emphasizes to me, Gordon and Amelia, as well, the practicality of this as well. And so, you know, you often need to discuss with someone, well, what is the, you know, almost like an industry expert, as you say, whether it's about the landscape or, you know, OK, what's the context of why this happened or what this point is that we need to, to decide? It sound, as I say, Gordon, the practicality comes out for me. Yeah, no, exactly that. And I think when you work on these big cases, you know, all of a sudden you go from not knowing very much about a particular area um, of life and then suddenly becoming an expert on it within a year. <laughs> and it's all you're thinking about for two years as this case goes through the litigation process. And hearing our schedule, as you say, whether it's statements from an expert or from witnesses or, or whatever it is. Yeah, you you just hear all these different perspectives, which must be really, really fascinating. Wow. Yeah, exactly. On the witness point as well, you know, when we're doing witness statements, we're just getting a better understanding of what other um, professionals are doing and that sort of day-to-day -day, the issues that they're thinking about it what they're thinking about and I just find it really really fascinating some days we find a smoking gun and some days <laughs> we, we don't but it, sometimes the witness interviews and, and taking statements can be quite interesting because you, you learn a lot from their perspective of someone who was at that situation um, and sometimes there's a smoking gun there well, and, and and I guess also you 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 think through the logic of decision making as well, don't you? It's almost why did certain courses of action happen, and actually why where did we why did we end up where we ended up, so to speak? Yeah, so I'm particularly trying to understand you know why that decision was made at that time in those given circumstances, because hindsight's a lovely thing. Everyone looks back and thinks, oh, that was a either a strange decision to make or not quite sure why that happened. But if you actually look at the context, you can then fully understand. Oh, actually, that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yes, yeah, so all those stakeholders, that complex stakeholder map that you're 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 working with all, all the time as well. Um, I mean, you've already said. I mean, some of the things that you you enjoy and and you you find fascinating about the area. Is there anything else? And you've already hinted, I think, uh, both of you about some of the skills you use. You talked about drafting. You talked about the research. You talked about having that broader perspective. Anything else to think about in terms of again to guide our listeners 
you know, skills either you build or that things that are very useful to have as skills in this area? I think being able to adapt to your communication style and depending ah, on yep. who you're writing to or what you're drafting or who you're drafting it for is quite important. Because let's say you have, you know, um, your client is, is, there's a dispute over a piece of land and your client is a farmer and he may not have the same legal knowledge as, for example, the legal team of one of our larger clients um, who deal with these sorts of disputes on a daily basis. So the way that I would draft an email to an individual and to say, for example, a legal counsel at one of our, our clients is, is very, very different. And you have to be able to write in a way that is A, concise and B, understandable. Otherwise, you're sending something that's completely pointless and the client's not going to be able to comprehend. And, and and probably, no, that makes absolute sense. So I'm thinking there, especially as you talked about the industry experts, Gordon, as well, I suppose it's needing to think about, oh, we mustn't use jargon here, or we must almost cut through the jargon. Absolutely that, yeah. One of the things we need to keep, be really careful of is making sure we target what we write to what our audience is. And I think when we are working with experts as well, reminding them not to use jargon back at us, it's always quite, quite an exercise to go through. Yeah, it's like, yeah. please explain this to me in the simplest possible terms, please. <laughs> Because I'm a non-expert here, please. Yeah, I haven't done this for 30 years or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So there's something there about adapting communication styles. Any Anything else? Anything else you'll pick out for our listeners? Um, I think for me, sort of time management and project yep. management um, yep. through the larger cases, because you're working towards multiple court deadlines, which you absolutely must not uh, miss. Um, and you're, you know, you're working with various different people across the team internally and externally with various experts and witnesses who often will have their own day jobs to be um, dealing with. So adding on top of that to schedule calls, consultations, for them to review their own documents and sign them off. Um, it's really important for us to make sure we're keeping all that on track and keeping all the various plates spinning um, in order to meet the various deadlines. I think that's just quite a useful skill to have because um, it really translates to day to day. You know, we work on big projects in our own personal lives, or it could be renovating our flats, organizing a large event, and, and so forth. We're dealing with lots of different parties and trying to meet very different deadlines. I think that's definitely a big part of the day job and something that applies on a day to day level as well. And, and just to follow up on the sort of communication points, you have to really understand how your client likes to communicate. So maybe they like to read. Um, your advice in an email or would they prefer a formal note or is the best way to get in contact with them is just to pick up the phone and call them some people prefer to be called some people prefer to read an email and I think that's really important to understand those client objectives uh, in the grander scheme of things because you will definitely be much more successful in terms of client management and you know building that relationship with your client when you understand um, what their best method of communication is. Yeah, so actually adapting to the client. So, I mean, we talk about that in many times, but this is a great example, great case study from, you know, one practice area, isn't it? And, or, you know, this whole area of, of, of disputes. So, yeah, how do I adapt my communication style, you know, and actually fit in with, as you say, very busy lives that, that they have too. Um, just, just one thing that strikes me, mostly, you know, disputes. I, I can imagine we're talking about situations here where stress is quite high, pressure is quite high, potentially. And so is there something here about managing emotion as well that you have to deal with when you're dealing with various stakeholders? Does that come up? Um, yeah, I think so. I think understanding the various different parties involved and how they deal with stress, I think is important. The longer you work with these various different parties, the better you get to know them. So I think by the end of the court process, you pretty much know 
who needs a bit more management and who will, you know, has more experience in dealing with court processes and it's totally fine. Because one thing I just had really appreciated being a lawyer, being in litigation and in court quite regularly, it's just how daunting it is for a witness who's never been in court before to have to stand up and get quizzed by a barrister and pretty much um, get their credibility questioned. And um, so really trying to put ourselves in our client's, not only our client's shoes, but in our witnesses' shoes and trying to understand what it is for that to feel like for them um, in that experience so that we can offer that, I don't say support, but to give them enough of an idea of what to expect so they can do what's needed to prepare for that. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Amelia, anything to, to add there? Any, anything from your experience there to add? So I think very, very much what we've, we've already previously said, some clients will require a lot more handholding. Some yeah. of the cases are, you know, sometimes we're dealing with much smaller businesses. And these are people that have spent their lives building this business or growing this business. And, and now they're either having to sue about it or they're getting sued and, and about it. And this could be the, the first time they've ever been sued. And so they might require a little bit more handholding. But going back to my earlier point of sort of adapting that communication line, some you know of our larger tenants are constantly suing other people or they're constantly being sued, depending on you know the type of work and or what they're asking us to do. So they require less communications and they might prefer to even get less communications from us because if we're constantly telling them stuff and they a might already know it and b might not have the time for it and c don't don't need it and um, so it's really important that we're, we're focusing on on what our client needs and how we can support them in this time that could be really stressful for them particularly if we're dealing with individuals and this is you know their, their small business exactly where where as you say they built it up it's their their businesses their whole existence so to speak yeah exactly yeah um anything else on the on the skills side you'd you'd highlight either of you um i think one other point the sense of skills would just be the problem solving element and um, oh, yeah. the way i yeah. think the way i see litigation is that each case has a factual scenario with its own set of unique issues and you need to use the law um as the tool to resolve those issues so for me it's a big exercise in problem solving where you have sometimes unique complex, complex issues and you've got your case law, your statutory interpretation and the remedies available to be your tools to resolve those problems. And I think I'd like to think about it in a sort of more analytical way um, in terms of looking at cases and how to best resolve them. And just taking that point, we have to be quite proactive in our, in our jobs. Um, rather than being reactive. So if we anticipate needing something from our client in a particular document, or we anticipate needing to speak to somebody to get a little bit more information about something, we should really be planning ahead. And this sort of proactive approach and this to taking this more global view is really important in, in the litigation side of things, because sometimes we can't get things last minute. You can't, you know, it, somebody's not going to have enough time to dig out this particular document that we now require so really looking forward thinking about what you need how you're going to get it how long it's going to take you to get it and it's necessity and so all, all those sorts of things about being proactive and looking ahead yeah and and it strikes me and, and Gordon that that point uh to, you know as you say as you've just echoed Amelia as well it strikes me that, that working out as you say almost the dependencies almost what do we need to know to help us build this bit and you know as you say it's putting together this puzzle isn't it as you say of then yeah. all the things we'll need to actually on that day be able to present a coherent uh situation either to to the arbitrator to the um to the judge um and to yeah so it's almost painting I guess it's almost painting painting a coherent picture for people, isn't it? So again, it goes back to your communications point, Gordon, too. Yeah, exactly, because it needs to be understood by a judge and quite yes. often, you know, it presents it so complex that, you know, we are, 
well into the detail of it because we've looked at it for months and months and sometimes years uh, and then to present that to a judge or multiple judges in a coherent way is really important um, and being able to, to pass over studio and documentation to counsel so they can present their case as effectively as possible is really key to our role. And because the court systems are so busy all the time, judges don't always have a lot of prep time. Sometimes no, no prep time as if it's on a emergency case that's gone on to the, the court rules quite oh, late. Okay. Yeah. Um, so sometimes judges don't have time to read into all of the papers, especially if there are a lot of papers. And so you do have to make sure that you are doing things in the most concise and clear possible way, because although we know everything and it's sort of second nature to us, as Gordon said, by the point that we get to court, um, the judge is definitely not in that same position. That's really interesting, again, which emphasises, you say, this this skill of being able to, to, to draw out almost in the executive summary style, the kind of the key, the key, identify key bits of information, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, being able to identify the key areas, but also being able to, be able to know the detail well enough that if you are asked a question about something, you know where to find it, you can present mm. it quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just just to explore one element that I think you just touched on there there briefly, almost the human ele element of this. Is there something around um, sort of influencing and persuade persuasion skills as well? Is that is that something, or does that come through the analysis? How how do you see the influencing part? So the influencing part comes from our, and the persuasion part comes from our legal analysis of the case. So mm -hmm. we as solicitors will spend a long, long time dissecting the case and thinking about what our arguments are going to be and also thinking about what our opponent is going to say so that we can counteract it because the worst time to have a weakness in your case flag is for the first time by the other side and you know very much coming back to the proactive thing that I mentioned earlier we should really be ahead of the game um, and this is the, the same thing is when we pass our cases over to counsel who then use you know their oral advocacy skills and their written advocacy skills as the art of persuasion. And is the, and you know they're the ones who are in the firing line from the judge and um, to to present our cases. So it's it is a massive collective effort by everybody to break down a case and then build it back up. Mm. Yeah, so actually you all have your role in the persuasion part, I suppose, as you say, whether it's the analysis, the putting together the story, and then it's obviously presenting it, as you say, Gordon, in a clear way that's with a succinct points as well. So all of that builds, I can I can, I can can understand that. Wow, fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time, and, and um, I, I don't know if there's anything, we've talked a lot about um, sort of what it, what the areas are, we talked about the, the approaches within court and outside court, in the arbitration, in the arbitration um, methods and... and uh, and uh, decision making. We talked about some skills that we used as well. And, and I suppose we've hinted already at some of how does this fit in with the daily life? We talked about how this can be, you know, affecting the whole business of, 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 of a person, for example, this dispute. We've talked about you need industry experts because it might be something that's a really practical situ situation. What about the bigger picture in terms of actually the problems we're solving? Is that just very client specific in terms of um, that is just a very case specific. Um, I suppose it depends on the client. Mm. Um, because to some extent it can be case specific and client specific. But if we have a client, for example, who has many stakeholders, then the decision could be really important to how this case goes because it not only will affect the client, it will affect multiple stakeholders. And sometimes those stakeholders could be um many, many people. If it's, for example, an energy company, and you know, as consumers, we use the energy company. And the decision that we're taking 
might have a huge impact there. So I think, yeah, often we have to think about that sort of broader picture and who else might be affected. And that comes part of that persuasion point that um, Amelia was talking about when presenting to the judge of the impact of the decision um, that we'll have. So just to give a practical example, sometimes we act for the landlord of a property and their tenant may be in arrears and not paying any rent and the landlord may seek to recover those rent arrears. The landlord may wish to go really, really hard straight into a sort of court process after you've done all your um, steps prior to that. But sometimes um, a more a softer approach is preferred, for example, a more um, negotiation line. Um, or just um, sitting down and having a discussion because, for example, the, the landlord may not wish to just recover arrears and if their arrears aren't recovered, then to kick the tenant out. The, the landlord may wish to keep the tenant there for, you know, continuing the rent or if the landlord wishes to do something else with the building later on. So whatever the landlord, so for example, our client's objectives are, we have to take those into account of when we're advising and where we think the next steps should be, because they may want to keep the tenant out, they might want to keep them, and we have to be really aware of that fact. You see, that's really interesting, really, because it almost, it makes you think of almost like the spectrum of, of different choices you can make strategically, doesn't it? As you say, where you were saying, are we going really? to be quite aggressive in this situation? Or actually, what, what's, it goes back to your point, Gordon, I think you mentioned too, about what's the outcome we want that actually, yeah. you know, fit, fits with the client's needs here. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. So let's make those strategic choices. Very good. Just one, just one, you know, trying to wrap up and, and bring this um, to the close. We talked about so many different areas within litigation arbitration too. Um, I suppose all the skills you built, some of the knowledge you have now, I, I was just thinking looking backwards and almost this point we often ask on the podcast of, you know, if you were giving advice to your younger selves, thinking about careers and the choices in general, anything you might sort of look back and say to yourself? I think three things come to my mind is that one, don't give up. Um, it was a really, really tough process, you know, applying for vacation schemes and traineeships, um, but just appreciating that it is a tough process, but if you just keep going, you'll get there in the end. And I just remember being quite disheartened by that process at the start. So I would go back and just tell myself, just keep going, it'll be worth it. Secondly, be open-minded about where you'll end up. Um, I came to CMS convinced that I would be a corporate or banking lawyer, <laughs> uh, being in the transactional side. But yeah. through my traineeship, I was very lucky to try different seats um, throughout my two years. And my second seat was litigation. And I absolutely loved my six months here. And that's the team I qualified into. I was the only team I was interested in qualifying into. And then the final bit of advice I would give myself is that law is ultimately very broad and not to get too stressed out about where you qualify into or where you might specialize early on. There's a lot of transferable skills. And if you want to go into a particular area, even if the opportunity isn't there for you right now, build on those skills, build on the opportunity you do have and keep pursuing the area that you want to go for. That's great, Gordon. It's really good to hear those those sort of sentiments. And I, I very much echo what Gordon has said on sort of keeping your mind open. Um, but just to maybe touch on a slightly different point, and hopefully um, our listeners can take something from this, but I am a really big advocate for sort of networking and building relationships, which is the very final point that Gordon um, touched on there. So, for example, LinkedIn is going to be a very, very good friend to you here because you get to meet so many people on that platform and it opens up so many opportunities that you may not have heard about before. So people may be advertising their events on LinkedIn and that's a really good place to pick that up. And um, there are also a lot of mentoring schemes that you can pick up on LinkedIn. I myself sit on a couple of mentoring uh, scheme programs. 
And, and those are really helpful, especially for people trying to break into the law. So either trying to break into this sort of commercial sphere or even just law generally, or they're currently studying law at university or thinking about going to um, study law at university. There are so, there's so much information that you can find out on there. I would also just say to try and attend as many events as you can. So it may be ones that you see on LinkedIn. And that might be firms that are hosting open days to try and recruit people into their firm, or it could be just other externally organized networking events. So just to give a recent example, um, just last week, I attended a women in law event at a local hotel, which was organized by a platform who empower and support female founders and female businesses. And on that panel, there were various female founders and they discussed their journeys and how this, this organization had supported them. So it's a really great networking opportunity to meet other people um, local to where we are, which is in Edinburgh at the moment, um, across various professions and how we can best support other female founders or other female businesses or just businesses in general. And you just never know who you might meet at these events and you know you never know who you're going to connect with on LinkedIn. So definitely um, networking is going to be a really, really good friend here. Um, I guess just, just on that note, since we're wrapping up, um, as I said, my name's Amelia Matt, my colleague Gordon Zhang, both of us are on LinkedIn. So we'd be more than happy to have a chat or if there's anything that's come up in this podcast that you would like to follow us up on, um, please do let us know. I, you'll also see on my profile a link to my website, See Through Law, which helps people break into the legal sphere. So it gives all my sort of top tips and tricks for breaking into law firms and how to get there from university level into the training level and into the summer vaccines that Gordon mentioned. So if you do have any questions on that, please do let us know. That's super. That's very generous of you both. Thank you very much indeed. And some great advice there, I think, for everyone listening. As you say, the resilience point, Gordon, don't give up open-minded uh, you know I've, I've said this on the when we've been talking about a few different areas of law you know so often the trainee came in the firm and said I know I definitely want to do this or more often they would say the one thing I know I definitely don't want to do is this and then what happened two years later they actually of course found they, really, <laughs> they loved it as well as you, as you say which which is often often an outcome um and that great point on networking I couldn't agree more Amelia yeah use the networks there's lots of great stuff that's out there you can just throw yourself into get lots of information contacts ask advice so thank you very much for your generosity there that, that that's super well Gordon and Amelia thank you so much that's been such a fascinating insight into the whole area of litigation and arbitration we've learned about skills we've learned about how we need to think about the clients the different strategies they have how we need to project manage really well and you've given us some great advice there as well about how to forge your career and think about this this whole pathway towards that area of law so thank you well, we hope you've all enjoyed it, listening in, and that's given you an insight into the area of litigation and arbitration, a whole area of dispute resolution. Listen in to another episode of Reimagine Law soon. Thank you.